Isn't God wonderful? All right. Welcome, everybody. We're going to continue in our study of the Pentecostal Handbook, also known as the Book of Acts. And we will be in Acts chapter 9, studying the conversion of Saul, who would later be known as Paul the Apostle. Let's welcome up our Apostle and our visionary leader, Joe Irostek. All right. You're an awesome man of God. Thank you. All right. Let's turn to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9 today, we're going to learn from Luke that he gives us, as Pastor Jared just said, the conversion of Paul. And uh, what we learned last week is that his name is Paul and Saul from the beginning. There is no transformative name change with him. Paulos is Roman from the Latin origin, which is Saul. And actually today you're going to learn of another name that was a Hebraic name, uh, Aramaic kind of name, and then it has a Greek name. uh, name as well. So there's sometimes they're going to be Greek, sometimes they're going to be Latin, but there is no transformation of name with Paul. Just a little pet peeve of mine. And also, it's not the book of Revelations, it's the book of Revelation. There you go. So Paul gets saved today. We get to learn a little bit about his early ministry and the two miracles performed by Peter. Let's get right into it. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So right here we see that it goes to that extreme level. Remember we were talking about a Gamaliel's advice, which was let them alone, let's see how it turns out. But by the time that uh, Stephen is stoned, they're on a whole nother level. The Jewish people had a little bit of latitude to enforce their laws in the Roman provinces that they were in. But by the time of around 60 AD, Nero, uh, the Romans get sick and tired of the Jews as well. And so the Romans turn on the Jews and the Christians. And by 70 AD, they destroyed the the temple and Jerusalem, the Romans do. So at this time right now, it's the Jewish people with uh, a little bit of latitude with the Roman government persecuting and killing Christians. And that's how Paul gets thrown into a Roman jail is because of the Jewish accusations against him. And now Paul has the right to murder and imprison uh, Christians. He went to the high priest to get these orders. So it is approved by the high leadership of the churches uh, of the synagogue, excuse me, of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. And so that's why I got a little tongue-tied. The chief priest of Jerusalem gives him permission now to go to the surrounding areas and check out their synagogues so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And sometimes you can see when they stirred up the crowd enough, like with uh, Stephen, they could stone them right there. So it seemed like to be a strategy was to kind of cause these riots that might uh, deal with the justice right there and then. And you'll see that in other places in the book of Acts. Uh, probably the Roman government didn't give them permission to kill people. But when, when something like uh, you know, what happened to Stephen, they probably didn't care much. When you see when it begins to happen to Paul, they can't do it to Paul because Paul is what? A Roman citizen, exactly. So they were giving them that little bit of leeway to kind of accidentally, you know, kill their own people, which they may be able to say, like, well, everybody just got mad and started throwing stones in the riot. What could we do? And you'll see, like I said, they start these riots other places. But once it starts with Paul, Paul's like, no, I appeal to Caesar. I want a fair trial. You can't do this to me. And God actually uses that as a means of getting him into uh, deeper into the Roman Empire, actually bringing him to the capital city. Uh, another thing that we learn right here is is that the Christians had spread out to Damascus. What is significant about Damascus? Not necessarily the place, but the region. Think back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. To Jerusalem, you're going to, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then where? 
to the uttermost parts of the earth or the ends of the earth. Damascus is now moving into those regions. It's even northern than Samaria. And we see that at the end of Acts chapter 8, Philip is getting taken to those regions as well. And by the time of Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, we're seeing the Gentile conversion start to happen. And then the book of Acts uh, after that with Peter, uh, the book of Acts switches entirely to Paul. And Paul then starts reaching out to the Gentiles. And his way to do it was first to go to the Jews, then to the Gentiles in these various Roman provinces. So it's really cool to see like how Luke is walking us through the fulfillment of what Jesus had said. And this is once again the Pentecostal handbook. So they're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now Paul says, I got to go all the way up into these places to try to get these men and women. And it says they belong to the way. That was a nickname of the Christian church at that time, the way. And there actually came a cult out of the 70s called the way. I don't think it's too popular anymore, but they adopted that name and they were a Christian cult, uh, similar to like the Jehovah Witnesses. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now we know this is Jesus, so let's just answer the question right here. Why does Jesus identify himself personally with the Christians that are being persecuted? Because previously in Matthew 25, 40, he said, what you do for the least of these, you've done for me. What you've not done for the least of these, you have not done unto me. This is probably one of the most uh, uh, taken out of context scriptures by Jesus. This is not a mandate to go feed one-eyed Willie or to go visit the person who's in jail for raping somebody. Because it says, what you did for these people, you did for me. You went and visited them in prison. You went and helped them. Uh, when they were sick or naked, you took care of them, you fed them, etc. When you did it for them, you did it for me. And it says, what you've done for the least of these, my brothers, my brothers, my people. And in another place, in Adalfoy, by the way, why the NIV can translate now, brothers and sisters, where the Greek word Adalfoy was, and it just used to be brothers, is because the more we've studied of that culture, we understand that brothers would mean in general all people. So those who have found in the NIV, a little bit more of the sisterhood there. That's actually true to culture, that uh, when they would say countrymen, it would also mean countrywomen as well. So what he says, you've done unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done unto me. The idea here is that this is the body of Christ. Why? Because Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? Are they my literal ones out here with my mother that are wanting to take me away from preaching the gospel right now? No, it's whoever does the will of my father. Whoever does the will of my father is my brother or sister. So do we have a precedent to help the needy that are unchristians? Yes, we do have precedent to do that because the Bible says uh, we should love our enemies, not just those who do good to us because even the wicked do that. We should be like our heavenly father who sends his reins on the unjust, excuse me, just like he does the just. So when we give out blessings and help and support, we can do it just like our Heavenly Father does, who sends rain and good times to the wicked, even to the right, as He does to the righteous. We can give help to the wicked as we would to the righteous. But the Bible says, first and foremost, we do it for the body of believers. Do good unto all people, especially the body of believers, especially those in the church. So it's very, uh, very good to understand that, to clarify that, to understand why Jesus is identifying himself personally with the church that Paul is persecuting. Now let me ask you this. Has that changed? Yes or no? No. Has it changed that Jesus identifies himself with the persecuted church? No, so we should identify with the persecuted church because that is Christ among us, as the Bible says. They represent Jesus. That's the body of Christ. Just like I represent Jesus, they represent Jesus. So we should not neglect them. We should pray for them. And those who do ill against them are going to be held guilty for doing it against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So he falls down as he sees the great light, and he hears the voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Paul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. 
They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Let's go to Acts chapter 22, verse 9, and see if you can find your way out of a contradiction, a supposed contradiction, that Muslims or others who discredit the Bible like to find. Acts 22, 9, Paul retells the story again. He says, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. They saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Here in Acts chapter 9, verse 8, or Acts chapter 9, verse 7, it says, The man traveling stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Now they'll say to you, did they see or did they not see? My companion saw the light in verse 9. And in chapter 22, verse 9, it says, my companion saw the light. And then here, excuse me, let me get my mouse over. I don't know where it just went. Naughty little mouse. Where it says here, they saw the light. And now over here, it says, they, uh, excuse me, did not see anyone. So what is the answer to the apparent contradiction? They did not see anyone in one place, and then in another place it says they did not see the light. Yes, Joe B. There you go. They saw the light but not the person. See how much better that sounds now to understand? But people will try to tell you which one is it. They'll try to take the passage in Acts 22 uh, when it says that my companion saw the light. They'll try to say, see, they saw Jesus. That's what he means. Jesus was the light. Jesus was that presence there. So they saw it. But here in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 7, it says that they did not see anyone. But you have to clarify the difference between seeing the person of Jesus in the light or just seeing the light by itself. Isn't that helpful to know that? So if anybody asks you to do that, walk through the passage with them. All of these supposed Bible contradictions, they are only, on the, they are only contradictions to the naive, but they are complementary to the well-studied. Amen? So Saul, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see nothing. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He was what? He was praying. So we understand that Paul is now saved. We understand that he is now saved. He confesses the Lord in the, um, in the dialogue, as we see here, in the dialogue with Jesus. He says, who are you, Lord? Because he understood that this was a messenger from the God he served. But once he saw that it was Jesus, he now obeys Jesus and does what Jesus tells him to do. This is the Yahweh that he had been serving. He does not see this as a separate God. That's why he is calling that, that, that person speaking to him Lord. Now, it could be uh, a little bit, because we don't understand all the time if Lord means Yahweh or if Lord means Master, but uh, it's safe to say he knew this was his God. That's the bottom line. But he didn't know if it was an angel representing his God or God himself. And when it is Jesus, the Son of God, he obeys and listens. And so the fact that he is praying, we now know that he is born again. I'll get to that in just a moment, why that's important. But it says he is praying there. Verse 12, in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered in verse 13, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, to the saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We see that Paul's calling now is going to be to the Gentiles and that he is going to suffer for the name of Jesus. He actually says something very interesting 
when he is in, uh, when he's writing the letter to the people of Colossians, uh, Colossia, he says, now I rejoice in chapter 1, verse 24, in what I am suffering for you. So he's suffering here for the Gentile people there in this Roman, Roman provenance, Roman city. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, some people might find the contradiction here. It says he is making up what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. Well, I thought that Jesus said it is finished on the cross. So if it's finished, why is Paul still doing something in regards to it lacking? Why is he doing something to make up for what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Is there a contradiction from the finished work of Christ and Paul's suffering, making up for the lacking of the sufferings of Christ? How would you explain this? How would you explain this contradiction, what seems to be a contradiction? Does Jesus still suffer? Yes or no? He doesn't suffer? Well, it says here in Acts chapter 9 that he's persecuting Jesus and Jesus is suffering. If he's persecuting him. It says here that Paul is taking up what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. Sounds like Christ is still being afflicted. So Christ is still suffering. Does anybody want to take it from here? I'm trying to walk you through this. Yes? Exactly. So it is suffering not in regards to salvation. It is not salvific suffering. It is suffering with his church. Right now, Christ is interceding and praying for his church. He is in a place at times with, of agony for the church that suffers. He's sensing the grieving. Uh, he is grieving while he senses their pain. Christ is grieved over how the church is treated. And so Paul is doing that because Paul understands that the church will suffer until Jesus comes back. So he's saying, I'm doing this on behalf of Christ because there's still more suffering. The more suffering is what is lacking. There's still more to be done. It's lacking, and my flesh is filling it up. My flesh is literally filling up, being filled up with the sufferings of Christ. How many of you want to see the journey of Paul in his sufferings? Do you want to see what ends up happening uh, to this mighty man of God? Well, we know that all of the words of the Lord come true. And, of course, this one does as well. He's going to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and then he is going to suffer greatly for them. Remember what it says here in Acts chapter um, 9, uh, verse 16. It says, uh, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Look here towards the end of Paul's life. He lists out over 20 things that he suffered for Jesus, and many of them multiple times. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, have been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. So that means five times he was whipped 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. That was the time we believe he was left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night in the deep and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. And all the college students can say, Amen. I have known hunger and thirst, and all the college students can say, Amen, and have often gone without food, or good food at least for college students. And I have been cold and naked, and I hope none of the college students say an amen to that. Well, maybe cold here in the church when I keep turning down the heat on you, but not naked in Jesus' name. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Arrestus had the city of the, and you're going to hear about this, the Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. 
although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ, probably speaking about himself, who 14 years ago, this is towards the beginning of his conversion, or excuse me, this is towards uh, the beginning of his ministry when he was stoned, when he was left for dead, we believe, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. Now think about this. If John was permitted to tell the things that he saw, and those things are marvelous, how much more marvelous would be these things that he wasn't able to tell. Amen? I mean, just think about that. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. So he says, even though I'll tell a story about myself in the third person, that's not what I'm going to do to get your respect. I want you to know that I'm here weak and God has made me strong. Even if I should choose to boast, I I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I say or do, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. No one knows what this is, but more than likely it was a physical illness. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Let's read this last part together. One, two, three. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. He was saved for a purpose. God knocked him down with that light and spoke to him personally. I believe that this is Jesus Christ choosing his 12th apostle for the government of 12 that will rule and reign from Jerusalem with Jesus. I put up a bunch of scriptures yesterday after the sermon on Facebook about scriptures uh, that teach about ruling and reigning with Christ. There will be thrones and governmental structures all over the world, but the main throne will be in Jerusalem where Christ will sit, and then the Supreme Court and all of the main rulers will be there. there. There will be the 12 rulers from the apostles. They will sit on their thrones, and they will rule with Christ Jesus over all of the nations, and their names will be written. Hallelujah. I get excited when I talk about this. And their names will be written written on the cornerstones and on the foundation of that city. God is going to honor his church. The church will rule and reign with Christ forever. They uh, casted lots, which was an old way of doing things, to pick Matthias, but Jesus picked Paul. This is my belief. And so Paul was chosen to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and as we read even yesterday in Ephesians, he was a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles, first and primarily by the Jews who just like not just like they did with Jesus by not understanding his call and having him crucified for being a blasphemer the Jews arrested Paul and put him in jail thinking he was a cult leader preaching heresy to the non-Jewish people to the Gentiles but he gladly suffered for them he gladly went through these things because he knew in his weaknesses Christ was made strong amen So we see here that Ananias uh, gets this vision, this uh, command from Jesus to go meet with Paul. Now in Acts 9, 17, Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, notice the term there, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus. Now this is where I I would be sure of the Yahweh reference of Lord. Now remember, the Bible's written in Greek, so we don't have permission like Jehovah Witnesses in the New Testament to insert. Jehovah wherever we see Lord in the New Testament. And they do that wherever it benefits them. Because in places where it says whoever confesses Jesus is Lord, which is obvious references to Yahweh in the Old Testament, they keep it as lowercase Lord to mean master. But here is a great place where it should be Yahweh. This means, Brother Saul, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, notice this. Paul was saved. I believe by him referencing the one speaking to him as Lord and then obeying 
the voice, he was saved. Then we now know Ananias confirms this when he, uh, God confirms this when he speaks to Ananias and says, Paul is praying. Then lastly, I believe Paul is saved because Ananias says to him, Brother Saul. He calls him a brother. And no one is a brother except the ones born again of God. Now, I know sometimes, um, like I said, Adolfoy can refer to countrymen and Jewish people might have referred to each other as this. But in this context, I believe it's just as it is in the other places, like in the epistles or in the places of Acts. This refers to the Christian. This refers to the brother and sister of Christ. Christ is our elder brother, the second Adam. We are conformed to his image, as the Bible says, uh, children of God. Uh, and so I uh, like, like how Athanasius said it, uh, the son of God became the son of man so that the son of men might become the sons and daughters of God. Something like that is powerful. Now, once again, son of man is not a title of uh, his humanity. It's a title of his divinity. We've talked about that before in uh, Daniel chapter 7, correct? Thank you. But I want you to notice why this is important. Because hands are laid on him to be healed and to be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Pentecostal handbook. We know later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, uh, I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, this reference, as well as the reference with Philip, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues. But we know that it's inferred by the later times of Paul's life, him saying that he speaks in tongues. And then when he lays hands upon uh, John's disciples in Acts 19, they're speaking in tongues as they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So obviously he had already done it because it doesn't say he does it there. So 1 Corinthians tells us he's doing it in chapter 14. And by Acts chapter 19, he's laying on hands for the boom shakalaka, and they're doing it. Where did he receive it? Received it right where it says it. And I, I mean by it, mean the evidence to speaking in tongues when he received him, the person of the Holy Spirit, because it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So now we're left with that same question again, as we, did talk to, as we talked about last week. Is this synonymous with salvation, i.e. regeneration? Is this when Saul is born again, meaning he did not have a born-again experience yet until someone laid his hands on him, which is the mistake that the Baptist and the Oneness Pentecostal both make, though from different angles, but they both make it to try to get away from the baptism of the Holy Spirit being a subsequent work of salvation. Salvation. If you say that Saul was not yet regenerated, now you have to explain why in the world would a believer have to lay hands on another believer to receive the Holy Spirit to be regenerated? This has never been taught in Scripture. It's never seen as a doctrine. Why would this be a practice of the church? Going back to Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, it doesn't say you will receive salvation. It doesn't say you will be regenerated. It says, and you shall receive power, and you will be my witnesses. Once again, where was the Spirit given for regeneration? Acts, uh, John chapter 20, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a unique doctrine and I don't have time to get into the details of it, but most people believe that since the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, that now he was God on earth and was solely responsible for the work of the Holy Spirit upon the earth. And so when he breathed the Holy Spirit upon the disciples, that was the release of the Holy Spirit to operate as a unique person under his own authority upon the earth, and then in Pentecost for him to come on power to the disciples, meaning that there was a unification of the Son and the Spirit upon the earth that had never existed prior or before, so that Jesus was in one sense the gateway of the Holy Spirit for that time, and so no one could have interaction with the Holy Spirit in an intimate way without Him. That's what some think. And then another way that people think is that no one literally was ever regenerated until the resurrection of Christ, and the first ones regenerated 
generated were the disciples who were breathed upon, and from that point on, the Holy Spirit acts in such a way, and that um, signifies the difference of the covenant, where in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would only come upon them for a season, like a temporary anointing, but they had no internal regeneration, and so they needed to wait in Abraham's bosom, paradise, for the resurrected, uh, for the, um, the crucified Lord to come and lead them into the presence of the Father, and then as he resurrected, everyone else after that is regenerated. So uh, the predominant Baptist, non-Pentecostal way is to believe that regeneration happened at all times throughout human history, but then, and, and this is the first thing I had given you, is that regeneration happened at all times, but then during the time of Jesus, no one was regenerated during his three-and-a-half-year ministry because it was just him and the Holy Ghost, and then he reinstated it afterward. Or the Pentecostals, like us, believe that there was no regeneration, that there was only experiences with the Holy Spirit, and the first ones regenerated were the disciples. It's really an in-house, I mean, of course, it's an in-house discussion, but it's a really intricate in-house discussion because there's not much said on it, and we're all just kind of left to speculation. It's not going to change the point either way for what I'm saying right now, no matter what at the end of the book of John, the Holy Spirit's regenerating people. Regeneration will never be associated with laying on of hands, period, period. What from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 9 is always equated with laying on of hands when it's regard to the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, the gift of empowerment, the promise of the Father. Can I hear an amen? Okay, so I just want to take a, just a few moments to go a little deeper into that because obviously I can't share everything at one time. So even as we're continuing to understand our references to John and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, those are the two options that you have for Jesus' ministry. Okay, and I just, for, for, for other reasons, I just don't believe they had the intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. For one, they had to go to the temple. And then in the New Testament it says, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So how could they have been regenerated, had an internal personal relationship with Jesus and still need to go to a temple? Yet that's the whole revelational change in the new covenant is now you are the temple. Does everybody get that? So I just believe all throughout human history until the time Jesus breathed on them after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit is more as an outside influence. I mean, he can speak to their heart, but it's more from the outside coming in. And then after Jesus Christ, now he's literally in us. We're in heavenly places, seated with Christ through the Holy Spirit, bonded and united with him, and now it's from the inside out. Does everybody see that? But once again, it doesn't matter. John chapter 20 stands on its own, whether or not you have the past view of regeneration or non-regeneration. It doesn't matter. From John 20 onward, uh, you know, before the ascension, after the resurrection, we know the Holy Spirit's regenerating, period. Those men in the upper room were regenerated. Every disciple that gets born again and, and up in, you know, until this time, even now, are regenerated. And, and, and that's why with Philip, they're regenerated. They they are baptized. The disciples come down in Acts chapter 8 to lay their hands on them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So why is it so important that I defend the Pentecostal handbook? Because I don't want you to become uh, the frozen chosen. I don't want you to become spirit light. I don't want you to regulate this book to a historical record that was only for those people at that time, and we can't expect any of those things. I want you to know what even other Christians say about this book to get you to, to simmer down and to not believe what you're experiencing is legitimate. It is fully legitimate. Let me just say it to you another way so that you can understand. We have a lot of people that come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. The Pope acts nothing like uh, the Peter of the Bible. We act exactly like the Peter of the Bible. We speak in tongues like the Peter of the Bible. We lay hands on sick like the Peter of the Bible. We go and preach on the streets like the Peter of the Bible, right? And the same thing is with Paul the Apostle. Just like Jackie at some point, I'm sure, had hands laid on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? It's like we see everybody equal at the cross, don't we? We see everyone coming equally to the cross. Paul needed someone to pray for him, not only to be healed because it's specific here, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've told you guys about traditions. It doesn't mean every time it has to happen a certain way, but this is the pattern. I was filled with the Holy Spirit without hands laid on me because I took God at his word from when I was a child. And when I was backslidden, I didn't forget those things. And when I came back, I just started speaking in tongues as at my mother's, uh, at my uh, 
you know, couch. I got saved at the kitchen table and, and re-baptized with the Holy Spirit at the couch. And so, uh, but, you know, technically they were laying hands on me. So technically, yes, I should take that back. I had hands laid on me. Uh, and maybe they were saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit, because were, my parents were praying a lot of things over me. I'll keep on going. Verse 18, immediately something like fells, a scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. So here we go. Saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. This experience is happening. For uh, the people in Philip's time, when he's preaching to them, they were saved, sanctified, water baptized, and then filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we see with Paul, he's saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then water baptized. So does the baptism have to come first or the filling of the Holy Spirit first? It doesn't matter. It's just as long as it gets done. Amen? Sometimes the baptism in water will come first. Sometimes the baptism of the Holy Spirit will come first. Uh, that is not what is important. What is important is that all these commands are followed. Go into all the world, make disciples of the nations, okay? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that's what we're doing. And part of the teaching is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and that's going to happen. So we have to teach everyone to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? He went from going to the synagogues to arrest the Christians to now going to the synagogues to make Christians or to make disciples or to preach the gospel. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 26, verse 19, Acts 26, verse 19, we also now get to give it to the Calvinists a little bit here because they want to say, well, so much for free will, so much for free will. didn't look like Paul had a choice. God knocked him off his horse, gave him a vision, blinded him, sent a man to heal him and pray for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and now he's sent to preach. wasn't his choice. Is that true? Now listen to Paul's own words towards the end of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26, verse 19. He's telling his story to King Agrippa. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. And then here he tells the story of why he keeps getting arrested. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But now watch. Was Paul irresistibly chosen by God? Was Paul's free will thwarted by God? Yes or no? No, he had a choice to be obedient, didn't he? And he says, I was obedient. After that vision and he was blind, he could have said, guys, take me back to Jerusalem. Don't take me to Damascus. He could have disobeyed. Then when, they, uh, when, when Ananias came there to lay hands on him, he could have argued with Ananias and said, I don't want this. He could have been rebellious, but he chose to be obedient. So does God interact in our life without our permission? Absolutely. God is free to do whatever God wants to do. But one of the things that God wants to do is give us a choice. It all starts and ends with God, but in the middle, God said you and I can have a choice to get in the plan or be outside of the plan. So God initiates his call upon Paul's life and knocks him down, shows him the vision. He initiates it, but he can still make his own choice. And then isn't that the same exact way that Paul now preaches? Does he say to people, well, God just chose me irresistibly. He showed up and gave me a light. So you know what? Get ready for him to do the same for you because until you see a light like me, it's okay if you don't serve God because that's your excuse now. I was irresistibly drawn. Now wait till you're irresistibly drawn. Is that what he says? No, he says, no, now I preach. You should repent. You repent. You turn to God. You demonstrate your repentance by your deeds. 
says in Romans chapter 4, as we were reading earlier today, that Abraham's faith was accredited to him as righteousness. Look at it in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was his choice to believe. Continue on as it gets even more clear. It says, um, however, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith, whose faith? Their faith is credited as righteousness. Their faith, continue on just a few uh, uh, verses down when he continues on to talk about Abraham. And it came, uh, the promise came before circumcision. Look at it, says here, verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be, res- that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the what? The faith of who? The faith of Abraham, he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into being, things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it is said to him, so shall your offspring be. And once again, verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. So somebody might point to Ephesians chapter 2 and say, faith is the gift of God. Well, first in Ephesians chapter 2, it's more, uh, it can go both ways on the translation. Great scholars have debated it, whether or not it is just the salvation is a gift of God, or if it's the faith and the salvation that is a gift of God. Verse uh, 8 of chapter 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Great scholars have argued on whether or not the gift that God gives is salvation or salvation and faith. I've gone both ways on it, but it doesn't matter either way because even if it is included in the gift of God, it is still up to you to receive it and to act on it and to make it personally yours. So I personally receive faith when I hear the word of God and trust it and willingly apply my life to it. At that point, we can say the faith came from God, but he gives it to me as credit to my account when I accept it and therefore I am saved. Does everybody get that? But great scholars like Dr. William Lane Craig say to the Calvinists, there's no, uh, um, there's, no, uh, there's no force upon the Greek here to say it has to be faith. The force is upon the salvation, and therefore the disputable matter is the faith. And so the non-Calvinist is not forced to take it. And for those who are not familiar with Calvinism, the idea is that God chooses who will be saved and draws them in irresistibly, and they don't have a choice to resist. And so he changes their desire and makes them want to be saved. And those who uh, are on their way to hell is because God never wanted them to be saved, and he allows them to follow their own sinful will. And and then in the end, uh, they're damned, they're doomed from the womb because he never interacted with them and gave them the regeneration he gave others. But that's not at all what the Bible teaches. You have to literally piece the Bible together and take it out of context to try to make that happen. You have to literally go to the Bible as if you're a conspiracy theorist somewhere in your basement with a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, thumbtacks and string going all over the Bible like this. It doesn't work verse by verse. Can I hear an amen? Going back to Paul, Paul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God by choice. He chose to be obedient to the vision. Verse 21, all those who heard were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. 
You're going to see here it's important that you must learn to debate and prove the validity of Jesus Christ. Not in fruitless debates, as the Bible says about genealogies and things like that. And you're not supposed to be a lover of arguments looking to always be disagreeable. But you must be able to contend, as the Bible says, for the faith. Give an answer, an apologia. And here, as Paul was, able to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, some people, they don't even listen to proofs, do they? I mean, I'll just tell you right now, dealing with uh, being overweight, I knew that I was overweight. The proof was in the pudding that I, I had eaten the night before, right? I could look at myself and go, I'm overweight. That still didn't change me from, from eating right, uh, you know, eating bad to eating right. I had the proof right there in front of me. People have proof all the time that smoking cigarettes is wrong. How many know they have the proof of that? They have the proof that being drunk is bad for your body. I mean, they know all of this, but people still go on in their own sin. And how much more so something that deals with the inner part? of your heart. You could have all the proof in the world and still deny it and say, no, I'm going to go do me. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't want a God to tell me to break up with this girlfriend. I don't want a God to tell me that, that I can't look at this or I have to spend my money here at the church. No, 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 no. I don't want any of that. So proving doesn't mean people are going to become Christians, but proving is what we do because we know we're right. You prove that two plus two is four by demonstrating. You, you know, pull out four apples or I show my children four fingers. I count it down. One, two, plus the other two, three, four. And sometimes we'll do it like this. Two plus two equals what? One, two, three, four. And it's the same way you prove something with the Scripture. Look, the Jewish Messiah, he's going to come at this time. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be from the seed of David. He's going to do these things. And you prove it through the Scriptures. Can I hear an amen? Praise God. Thank you. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. See, notice it's the Jews that want to kill him because he's reaching out from the synagogue to the surrounding areas. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Now, at once, at one time, he was the guy trying to kill people, and now they're trying to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And we had read about that in Corinthians. When he came then to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Maybe he's trying to infiltrate, right? But Barnabas, and what does the word Barnabas mean? Son of what? Abbas. Barnabas. Son of what? Son of what? No, yeah. There are wrong answers. Uh, I mean, somebody, well, I was going to say, some people say there's never a bad, nothing has a wrong question. But in Bible college, that's taken away. There are, yes, encouragement. But at least you were trying, okay. Son of encouragement. But what is his real name? Joseph. Thank you, Professor. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Once again, he talked and what? Debated. He tried to change their mind. Now, some people say, well, the Holy Spirit can do that. Don't argue with anybody. That is so redonkulous. That is as redonkulous as saying, uh, uh, preach the gospel, and, and if, how does it go? And then use your, yes, preach the gospel and use words with, if necessary. Preach the gospel, use the words if necessary. Preach the gospel, you better use words because they're necessary. Amen. And this idea that we're not going to talk and debate with people is such a, a worldview of this generation that has lost its courage to stand up for righteousness. And let me just say this because I see some of you guys giggling here. It happens all the time in our, churches, in our church with people. And here's the thing. They get saved, but their worldview doesn't change. Their, their worldview is still, that's why I pick on Oprah all the time because I want you to have an example of what our worldview looks like. 
I want to call her out for the world to see. They, they think the Oprah way of doing it is the way you're supposed to do it. They equate Christianity with niceness that they see in somebody like Oprah, like, like as if a, you know, a way of handling yourself is going to never offend anybody. And if you ever offend somebody, that's a way for you to know you didn't handle yourself right. You should have done something different. No, that's not true. Sometimes the gospel is offensive. Sometimes it will bother people. Sometimes they'll get mad. They already were mad at him. Just look at it. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. I know Christians that would try to kill me if they could get away with it. I'm being serious. They get angry at me. And of course the non-believer, but that's exactly what happens. Was it Paul's fault that they wanted to kill him? No, Paul's job was to tell them the truth. You can't be more Christian than Christ. They crucified Christ. Now does that mean we should be outwardly rude and disrespectful? No, but it's the truth that sets people free. You have to tell people the truth. The truth will bother them when they don't accept it. They'll think that you're attacking them. Like, for example, I was listening to one of these famous preachers. I won't name his name right now. As I like to say, I'm not in a sassy mood. Sometimes when I am, I just love to name their names, but right now I'm not. And, and you know what? He gets like this, and he talks like this about racism. You know, he was saying, I'm so sick of racists. Y'all racists need to get right with God. You know, he's being so loud about it. And I'm like thinking to myself, out of all the people you preach it to, who is a racist here? Maybe what, two people, three people in your audience? I get it. It needs to be dealt with. Say it. I say it. I say it all the time. Slave, ain't, sl slave owners went to where? I say it all the time. There's no doubt. So say it. But here's the thing I have a problem with this person is I've never heard him say it about abortion. As a matter of fact, when he's on the talk show, he stutters and can't say the right thing. Why doesn't he get like this about abortion and talk about how it's murder and if you down with murder, you ain't down with my church? Because it's hip to be cool with Kulpernick, you know, the players in the NBA. It's cool to be down against racism as if I know anybody that's been racist in the church for a long time. I mean, I'm just being honest. It's there. It needs to be dealt with. But my friends, don't get on the hype of the media thinking that racism is this huge problem among Christians. Among us, I don't even know of a racist here. Maybe you meet somebody, you let me know, and I'll get on them just as anybody else. But I see a lot of homosexuality here. I see a lot of abortion here. I see a lot of people shacking up who ain't living together here. Okay? Keep preaching against racism. Great. Yell about it. But also yell about every other thing Jesus said was a sin. Don't just get on what's popular. Do you all understand my problem with that? And it has nothing against standing up against racism. It's just I think it's been so political, you know, so political sized. If I, how do you say political sized? politicized, thank you, where it's like, dude, I'm, I'm not even with this, but I'm against racism. You, you get what I'm talking about? It's like I'm not, I'm not with Black Lives Matter trying to sneak in their, prob, uh, their, their agenda to all of these things, but I hate racism. I hate it. I hate everything about it. But then it's like if you're not, I, I remember um, uh, the Breakfast Club was interviewing Post Malone, you know, a white rapper, and they asked him, what are you doing to support Black Lives Matter? Because, you know, you come from the black community with all this rap. You know, you owe it to us to support Black Lives Matter. I wish I would have been on there. You know, ask me. I'm not doing one thing for Black Lives Matter except rebuking them and telling them to get right. But here's what I'm doing because black lives matter. I preach against racism. I preach in the black community by God's grace raising up black and African-American disciples. Are you listening? But, but what they want to do is push you into their agendas. They want to push you in that direction because that's their worldview. And it's the same thing. Like, you don't see me on Trump all the time. But they want to push this stuff about Trump, but they don't ever want to talk about their own junk. And now that all this junk has been coming out, now they all making excuses about perversion in Hollywood, perversion in the news. Man, all these people without Christ are perverted. Y'all thought Donald Trump was the only one? You fools. You are foolish. They're all sick and twisted in the industry. 
They are. There are so many pervert, Republican, Democrat, you know, rich, poor, all this. Perversion is evasive in this culture. But you see, now it's like it's a different story. See, that's I hate. I hate when it gets politicized. So my thing is behind the pulpit, that's great. You want to talk about racism because now Kulpernick takes, takes a knee or whatever. And you can have an opinion on that. That's between, you know, you and your church or whatever. But, but here's the deal. Why don't you preach against abortion? Why don't you preach against people in your church shacking up, living together who aren't married? Why don't you preach against greed? Why don't you preach against all the sins of the Bible? And then here's just another one of my pet peeves. Let me just tell you another one of my pet peeves. I am so tired of every preacher having something to say about the church. You know, the church this, the church that. Jesus says he identifies with the church. I understand, just like everybody else, there are churches that are backslidden. But if every time you rebuke, you rebuke the church, man, what are you doing? Of course we've got to deal with the problems in the church, but we better deal with what's going on in this culture as well because otherwise we're going to make everybody think in this culture that there's not a good church, that no one is doing this thing right, that we need the help of Oprah Winfrey to help get along better. No, 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 no. The church has its issue, but the church has its answer in Jesus Christ and in discipleship. So if y'all don't know of one, come to 5405 West Diversity and we'll show you a real church. And I'll show you the body of Christ is still alive and well in many places and locations. So the idea is, yes, we will debate. People will want to kill us. They will get upset with us. But that's all right. We don't die. We multiply. Amen. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and were strengthened. I was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Do you see the Pentecostal handbook here? It says they lived in the fear of the Lord. They understood that they pleased God, not man. And they understood God was a judge and he was a righteous judge. And the Holy Spirit was with them and the Holy Spirit multiplied them in what they did. And then here in closing, uh, not to treat it like it's not important, but it's a, it's a pretty simple two stories here. It, it now goes to Peter. And Peter will then take our attention to around chapter 10. After that, it will be Paul primarily for the rest of the book of Acts. Peter traveled about the country. He went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. So they're spreading out. This is the outermost parts of the world, as Jesus said. There he found a man named, don't say it. I had listened to this many times today. Aeneas. Aeneas. Hope that is right. I tried so hard today. I listened. I literally listened to this chapter on the way here probably six times, and I always wanted to make sure I remember this. And then my mind just goes blank. Everybody has that happen, by the way, folks. Everybody. Aeneas. It's not Ananias. It's Aeneas. The e there is silent, so it's Aeneas, I believe. Yes, Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and trusted and turned to the Lord. See, remember we talked about um, before if that man wasn't saved, um, Elimaeus. No, his name wasn't Elimaeus. Uh, Bar-Jesus. Wasn't, it, wasn't it, The sorcerer. Wasn't his name Bar-Jesus? Like Simon Bar-Jesus, right? No. No, let's go and look it up now. Let's look it up. Let's see. Acts chapter 8. Bar Jesus may be the other guy. I always get Elimaeus, but let's see. See who forgot here. Okay, some time. Acts 13 is what? Elimaeus? Yeah, I'm not talking about Elimaeus, but was he known as Bar Jesus? Okay, so you guys were right. I was wrong. Thank you, Simon. Simon, just that's all we know him as, is Simon the Sorcerer. Okay, you guys were right. Good job. Oh, man, I got something for you too, bro. I was walking the other day, and I found a dollar on the street. And you hardly ever find a dollar on the street. And I knew I was going to have this for something special today. Literally, the whole entire service almost went away with nobody winning some shekels. And here you got yourself a dollar, sir. Okay, so now going back to this, we see that... 
in that situation, Simon had believed, had accepted with the people of Samaria the word of God. It is the same sense here. They turned to the Lord. That's why I was telling you before, if backsliding is not possible because they were not genuine converts, then there is no description of a genuine convert in the book of Acts because whatever applies in these summaries by Luke certainly apply to Simon. Uh, Acts now 9.36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name was Dark Dorcas. So Saul is Aramaic. Paul is what? No. Paul is what? I said it at the beginning. No. Latin. When Jesus was on the cross, what were the three languages written above him, King of the Jews? Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. There you go. Greek was predominantly the culture of the Greeks as they were taken over by Rome. Still many people spoke the language. It was the language of commerce. Uh, Latin was the name of the Italians and the Romans in that region, and they were starting to spread it around the world. And Aramaic was the modern version of the Hebraic language, the Semitic language. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. So that's why we understand Paul and Saul. It wasn't a transformative name change, just once again. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that uh, time, she became sick and died. Her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went to them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the windows stood around, all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them out of the room. This was similar to Jesus' tradition. He just sends the unbelievers out or the ones who are just causing a distraction. Y'all just go out. It's time to pray. Then he got down on his knees and prayed, turning toward the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter sat up. He took her by the hand, helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became all this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stood, uh, excuse me, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Isn't this wonderful? God loves to use the most unlikely people in the most unlikely ways. Let's prepare to close, gentlemen, as you go to the back. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful chapel service. Lord, we just ask you to keep raising up Paul's throughout this culture, God. Uh, the modern-day Pauls, God, would be like gangbangers or those in uh, ISIS killing Christians, Lord, or those in North Korea hurting your people. Lord, we just pray you'll save them even right now. The drug lords of Central and South America, God, save them. Give them a revelation of who you are. And then, Lord, we ask that we will all be faithful like Paul to preach the gospel, even if it costs us something, even if we suffer for your name. That when we're weak, we'll trust in you to be made strong. We won't give up, Lord. We'll rely upon your powerful Holy Spirit that will find hope in you, even in hopeless situations, Lord, because you are our God and you are a good God. And, Lord, as we look to uh, Peter, even just healing this man and raising this dead woman, may we have the courage to pray and believe for the impossible. May we believe that all things are possible to those who trust and call upon your name. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, give it up for Jesus. Woo!